Welcome to Glop Culture, uh, sponsored by Harry's Shave. Oh, you can start oh. that again. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> Come on, they're paying us. We got to wait. We, we okay, hold on. Okay, you, ready? You have the one I sent, just sent you, right? I just It says show open, but I, shouldn't I say the show? I can't just say overpaying for drugstore razor blades. This is going in, by the way, Scott. <laughs> I, I'm serious. All right. Okay. It's a question. Are you overpaying for? Okay. Yeah. Sam, well, no, Sam, nice. like the camera, Sam, like the camera just stumbled on you in the bathroom right. while like you're right. shaving your legs. All right. You're like, you oh, like I'm Robert America. Durst. Like I'm Robert <laughs> Durst staring in the mirror with just the mic on. All right. Here we go. I shaved them all. Okay. <laughs> uh. Three, two, one. Hey, guys, uh, overpaying for drugstore razor blades is a bad habit that you should leave behind, right? So make the smart switch to Harry's. Use the coupon code GLOP at checkout to get $5 off your first purchase with that coupon code, which again is GLOP. We'll talk more about this later in the show. This show is, of course, GLOP Culture, the podcast uh, brought to you by Ricochet. Uh, as always, I am John Podhoritz in New York. With me in Washington from his uh, convalescent bed is uh, Jonah Goldberg. Hi, Jonah. Hey, John. You said you're you're here in Washington? No. Did I say I was in Washington? I'm, you did say you were in Washington. Yeah. I'm not in Washington. I'm in New York. I'm just after, wish that, I... after that fantastic uh, Harry Shave spot in which you sounded a little like – English was your fourth language. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a very smooth intro. Thank Hi, John. I, I am in actually in New York, as I as I always am, uh, not in Washington, though maybe I would wish I were in Washington because, of course, so many wonderful things happen there. But in – I don't even know where he is. Rob, where are you? Rob I'm in New York too. John, Rob I'm Long in is in New York also. Rob Long ordinarily – you know, a testifying to us from the shores of uh, Venice Beach, but is now on the East Coast. Someone told me that the snow was, had melted, and I thought I'd come see it for myself. Indeed, the, indeed the snow has melted, and I think we, uh, we all owe Boston a big mazel tov because it beat the <laughs> snow record. Congratulations, Boston. I don't know what, re- what, uh, what prize you get for beating uh, the all-time snow record, but that was not true in New York, but it certainly was true in Boston. So uh, the winter appears to be over, which is a blessing. And uh, and now, uh, among other blessings for some of us, uh, the news since the last uh, podcast that we shared uh, that Jon Stewart uh, is uh, departing The Daily Show uh, and is uh, going to do something else. We don't know what. I bet you he does, even though he's not saying. Um. And of course, what that means, as our uh, as our producer Scott points out, is um, is that uh, the Democrats have now been denied hundreds of millions of dollars in free media uh, from this highly influential uh. show going into twenty sixteen. Do you guys agree with that? Uh, I do. Okay, because because we have Stewart and Colbert both. Off the air, off Comedy Central. Now, of course, Colbert, Stephen Colbert, is going to CBS, but one can presume that his show is going to mm-hmm. be toned down very radically from from. Well, the, right, 
right. con- I mean, contribution that it was, you know, as an anti-conservative. You forget those late night shows. There's 1130 talk shows that, th- that used to re- replace the Tonight Show, the Tonight Show slot. They are gigantic money makers if they're done right. And if they're done wrong, they are huge money losers. You pay the people a lot of money and you expect to get an audience and that audience has got to be broadly based. So if you start – I mean the reason why Lena was so uh, successful was he was not political. Um, we all suspect that Leno is probably a moderate Republican when push comes to shove. Yeah, well, you uh, know, one of the things we've learned about so Leno well to in the your last right six then, months, right, Rob? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I found it to be, I thought it to be just a, a fascist, just a horrible fascist. Because <laughs> as you know, that's the farthest right you can be is a uh, fascist. Well, uh, well trolled, my <laughs> friend. Well trolled. Wait, so wait, so so Jonah, do you 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 think? I mean. Do you think the Democrats are really going to feel a, a, the, the pinch of the lack of free media? Or, or they call it, bizarrely, they call it earned media in um, in PR circles when when people just talk about you for free. For some reason, that's called earned media. Interesting. Um, yes, I do think so. Not so much because of the uh, Daily Show's like sort of mass normal audience, but for the same reason. Um, that the New York Times has influence outside of its own sort of sales and circulation. The Daily Show set the tempo. There's all of these – I mean there are I mean, countless young writers, journalists, television producers in Washington and in New York and in L.A. who think that – and the, you know, the polling of millennials backs this up. You know, think that the, the John Stewart, The Daily Show is the best news out there and really gets to the heart of the matter and everyone sort of – in the Beltway punditocracy, they take their cues from it. And so, you know, John Stewart had this, has still, he's still on there, this incredible power of how to frame issues. And when he goes after a Democrat, that means it's okay for everyone else to go after a Democrat. And when he uses a line of attack against Republicans, then all of the sort of juice box mafia little bloggers and everybody else, they follow in to sort of say, here's why John Stewart is right. Um, and, uh, so I think it is a big loss for the Democrats and for liberals generally. I mean, you think you know, gonna see, are they going to see it? You think they're going to see that? Oh, I think they know it. I think they're very elegiac about it and feeling very sorry for themselves about it. Um, you know, it's an interesting, if you think about the historical journey, uh, that John Stewart has taken, what move in the course of his career was it? Uh, that really shot him into the stratosphere a couple of years after he started The Daily Show. It was when he had this confrontation with Tucker Carlson on Crossfire on CNN where Tucker said something like, you know, why don't you be funny? And Stewart said, I am funny. Why don't you do the news? Like I'm just a comedian and you are supposed to be doing serious stuff and here you're making a fool of yourself, right? And the transformation is – that John Stewart now takes himself very, 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 very seriously, and even though well, everything is done in a tone of yeah. high sarcasm, and you know, and what he knows exactly what he's up to. He knows we, that his job, right. as he has defined it, is to define the limits of ridicule or expand the limits of ridicule against the people that his audience does not like, and it's a sort of jokey two-minute hate that he provides every night but it's also he also quickly retreats when he's wrong or when he's oversteps or when uh someone makes a fool out of him by saying hey i'm just an entertainer i'm just an entertainer 
Yeah, it's an absolutely yeah, no, it's, fantastic. I remember, I remember this story for a friend of mine told me he was walking through an airport once and he passed uh, Al Roker. And he said, uh, hey, Al, what's the weather going to be like tomorrow? And Al said, I'm just an entertainer. <laughs> <Kept walking>. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's literally the weatherman. Right. It was an incredibly legitimate question to ask. It was kind of fun. Al Roker's like had a rote response, which is like, "Hey, I'm just an entertainer. Just I don't know what the weather's going to be. I don't even know what the weather's going to be like when I'm telling you what the weather's going to be like." Um, but I kind of enjoyed that, and that's what John Stewart does. Whenever you say, "Hey, actually, you're wrong about this and that," oh, hey, I'm just an entertainer. I'm just a comedian. Right. He always reminded me, the way I always described it, he was sort of like, you know, the Viet Cong. They would do these lightning strikes, devastating <laughs> lightning strikes, and then they re- retreat over the border back into comedy stand where, yeah. you know, you're not allowed to attack John Stewart. He's like, hey, I'm, I come on after a show with puppets, you know. Um, and I'm it just was a, funny. I'm just trying to be funny. Yeah. Yeah, which was, of course, incredibly intellectually dishonest. And I, I kind of like John Stewart. I actually, I certainly no, think he's, he's incredibly good. talented. He's incredibly talented. And, you know, the funny thing is, that um, it was all a confluence of events. You know, it was uh, he started to hit just at the time that the WMDs were not found and there was this, you know, sense on the left dating back to the Florida recount that everything that was going on in the Bush administration was illegitimate and rigged and he wrote it like he wrote it – yeah, hard and put it away wet, and that right. is you know, Can and I- you have to you have to give a guy <laughs> you have to give a guy credit for that. You know, he he saw his opportunity and he took it, and he yeah. created a second franchise in Stephen Colbert. And who would have thought that that really? And then he weird- wrote, yeah, that he wrote well, Stephen a third Colbert, fran- Colbert, a third franchise in John Oliver. Sure, right. Well, I mean, but he wrote, but basically he wrote all those. He wrote all those three guys pretty hard and, and put them all three away wet. Or am I going too far for this? <laughs> you are. Uh, I thought you were setting uh, us up for a Clinton. Segue. Wait, can I ask? Can, can I just for one minute? Can I just a, a thirty second detour? Just so, just a sense of this room, virtual room. Yeah. Uh, they didn't find the WMDs. Do we now, after all these years and, and the New York Times pieces, do we? Is it now official? Do we get to say to people, no, they there were, they had them. Do we get to say that? Well, we can say it, but there's a, there's one central problem with it, which is according to the big New York Times story, the CIA found all these WMDs in 2005 in Iraq, right? So right. why why didn't the Bush administration, which presumably knew this was the case, why didn't it say, oh, by the way, we found the WMDs? Yeah, that's did- the missing that's the missing yeah. detail here that is so peculiar, which is. There were apparently, you know, masses of of WMDs, but they weren't cooked new. I think that's the that's <laughs> the key that they weren't sort of from, you know, they didn't they weren't like an early they weren't a late vintage, you know. They hadn't just been, you know, they hadn't just been, you know, taken off the vine. And you know, they all had cork tops rather than the screw top tops, and that was a sign that they were. So, but you know, I still think that you have to give. You know, Stewart and Colbert in particular credit because who would have thought that, that bizarre high concept gimmick of running an entire show as a parody of somebody else's show would work for ten years? I mean, that that was what the Colbert show was, right? It was it was literally designed as a sort of thirty minute parody of Bill O'Reilly, and you right. know, as a result of it, he's ended up 
taking Letterman's job. I mean, and winning. I think he won like eight straight Emmys. Um, it's very interesting. Like, I, you know, I, I couldn't bear to watch it, but you still have to say, generally speaking, a sort of vaudeville gimmick like that wouldn't last very long. Yeah, I was not a fan. I mean, I, I think John Stewart is really great, and I think Stephen Colbert is very, very funny. But the Colbert Report, I just, I, I just found it tiresome. Maybe because I don't watch. I felt like I wasn't watching the source material enough. I had to watch O'Reilly and then I had to watch Colbert. That's like two hours a day. I don't have two hours a day. Um, And I also felt like who's – what are they laughing at again? I mean – and there's a certain – there's a certain chicken quality to it that I I, I get tired of when – when very powerful comedians with an hour of time choose to make fun of someone easy in their lives to make fun of. Right. Um, it would be more funny for me for one of those guys to make fun of somebody a little, where, where it pinched a little, it stung a little. Right. I I felt that way about Spy Magazine thirty years ago. That you know, yeah. boy, Spy Magazine. It's so irreverent. It's so incredibly irreverent. Yeah. Like making fun of Donald Trump every month. Boy, that's really daring. Right. You know. Right. Like right. like take on you know take on some real serious look you can say what you want to about christopher hitchens somebody that i was um you know have very mixed feelings about but he was a real contrarian i mean there was a guy who like yeah, went after right. mother teresa you know i yeah. mean that's that's what you do if you're really like a take no prisoners person you don't just you know go after the people that you didn't like at harvard you but know you that, who went you right wing when you yeah. were at harvard you know that's that's just you know that's I, just inside gamesmanship and of course the spy guys by doing that Graydon Carter then yeah. by being careful about who he attacked got to edit Vanity Fair and Kurt Anderson went on you know to host a very popular NPR show and they didn't gore you know, they <laughs> they gored no ox that could do them that could do them wow. a solid they right? they rode no ox hard and put no ox they, away well they put no no I, gored ox away hard away, right but you know what's weird do you, do you think it's kind of sad is it kind of a wham thing andrew michael or whatever his name is and R- michael ridgley or andrew ridgley and george michael like graden carter is you know swans around i i use that term advisedly kind of actually lumbers around he's getting kind of large at his various hot restaurants, running this big magazine, and Kurt Anderson is sort of sitting in some you know little studio somewhere, probably smells of mold with head, bad headphones on, doing NPR. Well, you know, I uh, yeah, it's I don't know if it's it sad. Like a, I feel sad like this is, is not exactly the word I would use for oh. that. But it feels like wham, or kind of a wham thing, or a tears for fears. You know, where one guy, it turns out it was always one guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> Right. But I do think it's really – now, look. Look, here's the interesting thing because, you know, as as people may know, um, Greg Gutfeld, who has uh, hosted uh, the very late night show on Fox called Red Eye now for eight years, seven years, eight something years. like that. Yeah. Eight years. Is now sort of stepping down to get his own weekend show at Fox. Now, here's how you know that the media are – you know, biased, you know, ridiculously interior and provincial, right? Because there is this show, goes on at three o'clock in the morning. Nobody ever says a word about it. It's enormously successful. It is enormously countercultural. It is weird. It is offbeat. It is bizarre. It is funny. It is politically incorrect in the most remarkable way. And it is is a moneymaker. It created a franchise out of nothing. And, and a star out of nothing. And, and, and a star, and a star yeah. out of nothing. And where's 
you know, where are the Emmys for Red Eye? Where are you know where where is the Rolling Stone? Where is the Rolling Stone cover for Red Eye? Where where, where is, is it, Jonah? Times? No, but I mean it's an interesting. So the whole point is, you know, that is what it means to be a semi-countercultural comic mm. show, right? Because it turns out Red Eye is of no interest. To, to any of these people because it's not in their universe. Everybody, you know, people aren't sitting up in Park Slope late to watch Red Eye as they go to bed, you know, with their with their two children after they do their, you know, their monthly service at the Park Slope Food Co-op, which is the key audience of The Daily Show and The Colbert Report, the sort of media audience. And yet, you know, that show was summoned out of nothing, had but, no okay. model – there was we, no model for it except right. maybe Joe Franklin. Right. Or, but we do have yeah. – we have right now on this line a genuine – I will say this, a genuine example of the cool, very many ways countercultural. If you – you know, capital C culture, whatever the prevailing culture is in America, he goes counter to it. Very popular uh, – very popular with the kids, Jonah Goldberg. <laughs> I really had no idea how that sentence was going to yeah. end. But it's true, right? No, it's that, true. That, but for example, no. Now, now, let me take up. Let me take up. Isn't, wait, wait, wait. But John, wait, wait. But isn't Jonah, right. isn't Jonah our John Stewart in a in a weird kind of kind of crazy no. night is day, day is night, baby's born no. with two heads kind of way? No, I'm no, not. No, he ought he ought to be, but he is uh, not because no. the levers. Why just, are you, Jonah? You're not working hard enough, guys. One, I don't consider myself a humorist, right? <laughs> uh, Two, <laughs> you hate that, don't you? I'm sorry. I hate it. I despise you it. it. And yeah. uh, two, um, I don't have anything. I, I really, uh, when you were doing that really long interminable buildup about you know America's sweetheart crap, I really thought you were going to end it by referring to yourself because <laughs> um, <laughs> I had no idea. I am not the right John Stewart, and um, uh, I don't. I, I think the right could use a John Stewart, but a, but the right's John Stewart wouldn't be John. Wouldn't the problem that we get into is when we one of the reasons why Gutfeld is successful is he doesn't try to be the right's John Stewart. That's it's right. Too much co- copycat BS um, that goes on on the right, where the right says, "Oh, they have a Daily Show, so we should have a Daily Show," and we try to do the exact same thing, but from the right, that doesn't work. It's got to be an authentic right. voice that comes out organically yeah. and word on the street. You know, I've been spreading, I've been dropping Benjamins on shoe shine guys and stable boys all week. And they, what they're telling me on the street is that our own Rob long is going to be guest hosting red eye this Tuesday night. And I'm thinking therein lies perhaps the next John Stewart. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that could yeah. be it. That could that, be it. Yeah, it's, it's, it won't be, but uh, no, that, I think they, I think they are close to having a guest and they are a, a new, a new host. I mean, and they're just sort of trying to you know, sort of delaying the, you know, in the, in the ways they do, they delay the decision, they delay it, delay it, delay it. And they sort of put in a lot of guests in there as they sort of fumble around to get to their name. I believe they already have a name. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I do remember it's, it's, it's really interesting because I mean, I, I, uh, um, uh, you know, Jonah, you and I know Greg, and I know Greg pretty well, yeah. and, and so I, I, I'm in New York, and I see him pretty regularly here, and we've been talking about he's got a new show. It's going to be on um, pretty soon on the weekends, and I, and he asked me what I would like to see, right? What, what What's the thing that I don't see on TV um, that I want to see? And 
and said I, more I, Jonah Goldberg. I did say more Jonah Goldberg. Actually, <laughs> actually, I did say that. So I, uh-huh. yeah, I, I, I did. But I, I suspect that you don't really want to take the train up on the weekends. Gee, thanks, the Rob. Yeah. Gee, um, thanks, <laughs> Rob. Well, John, thanks, you guys. I, I have, I have other plans for you. Um, <laughs> um, uh, we're going to put you on Broadway. You yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> exactly. But I, what I said was, what I, here's what I'm missing, right? I'm missing somebody on TV who is genuinely smart, like Greg is, but still is smart enough to ask dumb questions. Yeah. And, and that's what I don't see on TV. Like, nobody's asking dumb questions. They're all asking weird policy questions, not weird policy, weird politics and process questions or, or trying to sound smart or in the know. No one's really asking questions for the viewer. Like, 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 I mean, we have a guy on Ricochet, uh, John Walker, and uh, he's this brilliant brainiac dude. He invented this thing called Autodesk and AutoCAD in the seventies, and he's really smart. And he lives in Switzerland, and and he and he posts every Saturday a, a post called Saturday Night Science, and it's written in the most clear, lucid prose. And it's some scientific topic that I probably my brain would fuzz out at the time, but. Uh, uh, he he writes it beautifully, and he wrote a great one about the enrichment of uranium, which I kind of know a little bit about bits and pieces, but no one did a full explainer exactly what Vox.com is supposed to do, and it was brilliant. And I thought, well, that would be – I would want somebody on television for 10 minutes, five minutes asking those questions of somebody who can answer that question um, in a sort of interesting and entertaining way so I feel smarter. Um, but maybe I'm just a Pollyanna. But, but it's know, funny because, like, uh, I am as 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 I discussed with I think both of you guys. I've been toying with the idea of being of of launching my own podcast, sort of become a Colbert like spinoff of Glop while still doing yeah. Glop, of course, because you know you can't you got to make the big bucks, and that's what you do at Glop. And exactly. um, but uh, and I have this sort of I, I agree entirely with the asking stupid questions, but not just stupid questions, actually asking questions that normal people ask. My dad always used to say this is that he, one of the things that used to drive him crazy about television interviewers is that they were all terrified to ask the questions that everybody in the audience wanted to know the answer to. And one of the examples he always used was remember when uh, Senator Bob Kerry was a big deal and um, uh, you know, he was the he was the senator who lost his leg um, in Vietnam. And he must have been on Meet the Press thirty times um, in the you know the late eighties and early and mid through the nineties. And my dad always said, "Not once yeah. have I ever heard anybody ask this guy, what's it like not to have a leg?' You know, what's it? Right. You know, just ask those kinds of questions. You know, don't, it's not a mean question. It's not a gotcha question or anything like that. But ask yeah, these you- questions that you know." are of human interest and you don't hear that anymore. It's always these, you know, crafted things. And it's also all the, all these questions that lead to some strategy answer or Mm -hmm. some kind of weird gotcha question instead of the actual question, which is, okay, well, wait a minute. How come it's easier to enrich uranium when it's 20% enriched to 90% than from five to 20? I don't get it. Why is 20, 25%? Why is that like, why is that? Why are you so much closer? I don't understand. Explain that to me. Um, and then all that's, that, that those explanations can be done. You know, people can explain those things, but no one does. First of all, I think John Stewart. One of his successes was that he tried to do that, and he did that successfully for the other side. He and he did it, and 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 people felt when they watched John Stewart, they felt smarter. They felt like they had an attitude about it, but they felt smarter. 
Um, and I feel like that's that. Maybe we we don't need a John Stewart, you know, clone, but it would be nice if we had somebody like that, and it would be nice if we had somebody like that on um on our uh, with a podcast, Jonas. Let's make that happen. You know. Um Everybody makes fun of him, and it's been thirty years, and it's he's a, he's now a figure of sport, and he's on Russia Today. But in his heyday, Larry King, who had a five hour a night, oh yeah, uh, yeah. late night talk show in the seventies and eighties before CNN, and I was an insomniac even as a teenager, and so I used to listen to it like from you know twelve to three in the morning, and he was on till five. And he was, he was, he was one of the best interviewers I've ever heard precisely because he didn't prepare for his interviews. Right. And what that meant was he said, you wrote a book. What's the book about? Mm -hmm. What does it mean when you say, you know, liberal fascism? Right. Uh, What is fascism? What is liberalism? And Brian Lamb used to do very much the same thing when he did long interviews on, on C-SPAN. Like he would ask simple Simple, straightforward questions of people and then allow them to be expansive in their answers. And it wasn't – But Brian the, Lamb was like the robot. The ro- Brian Ram- Lamb was the robot uh, version of Larry King. Tell me right, about your book. Yeah. What is your book about? <laughs> what is liberal fascism? What is fa- – yeah. But Larry King was both the best and the worst interviewer. Well, he became the worst. He became oh. absolutely horrible. But I'm – you know. My favorite Larry King moment, he's interviewing John F. Kennedy Jr., and this, they come back from a break, which was like a Digel commercial or some one of those really low rent CNN commercials. Great looking turns, hair, number nine. Yeah, something like that, right? <laughs> and he turns to John F. Kennedy Jr. and he says, "Riderless horse, what are your thoughts?" <laughs> and John F. Kennedy Jr. looks at him like, "What? The riderless horse that rode in front of your father's uh, coffin? What are your thoughts that day, little boy?" <laughs> He saluted, and then and then he says, "Ah, oh, well, it was a very very sad day, Larry. It was very, you know, I I lost my my father. It was a very sad day. Do you still have the feeling though? You were too young to have the feeling. Did you have the feeling? I had I had the feeling, Larry. I, I knew my father had died. I was I was old enough to know what that meant. Caller, are you there? And then went correct something yeah. else. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> no, but that was but that was when he had already become okay. a parody. <laughs> he had already he had already become a parody." His but, US, but, can I do one more? His USA Today column, I still have oh, it somewhere. Awesome. Cut it out. It was like this weird jumble of items, and I think oh, yeah. the, I think a, an assistant assembled it. The the Tuesday or the day after, because then she died on Labor Day. The Diana, Princess of Wales, died. Yeah. Um, speaking of funerals, and he's and the and the item was, can anyone look upon the hearse? Of Diana, Princess of Wales, and the two boys walking behind it sadly, and have his or her heart not break, and their you know their throat uh, swell up and their eyes well with tears. Next item: If there's a better sandwich than a ham sandwich, I haven't found it, my friends. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, wow, yeah. but, you know, Larry. But the thing about okay, it is hating. Okay, go ahead. That that column, no, but that column, he modeled on. These columns in New York newspapers in the yeah. 1940s that had ended for a reason. Right. Nobody Wait. did column. People had stopped doing columns like that for a reason, which is that they made the author of the column look like an idiot. Look insane. 
Yeah. So <laughs> the juxtaposition, although Twitter feeds can have that quality now. If you read yeah. through someone's Twitter feed, like it's you know it's like um, heart uh, watching the video of. Watching the video of the man beheaded by ISIS is the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. And that's like, I really like gum. You know, it's like, you know, (laughs) you know, on the Oscars, yay. Yeah, right, right, right. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So, um, but, but, uh, so Gutfeld, you know, one other thing to say about Gutfeld, which is, which is interesting, is I remember uh, the late Andrew Breitbart saying to me, I'm bringing. Greg Gutfeld to New York because I in I, we had known Greg, Greg had been a magazine editor and stuff because I'm gonna, I'm going to Ailes with Gutfeld because Ailes should give Gutfeld a show, right? That was Andrew's idea. He just had he thought you know Greg's really funny. He was doing these very um, he was doing these kind of self exploding Rube Goldberg columns for the Huffington Post. Remember that? Remember that? that you had awesome. to click. To read it, you'd have to click on his bio. Right. That's right, and, and it would, and, and it was some internal vicious parody <laughs> of the Huffington Post that Greg was doing on the Huffington Post. Right. You know, right. and I mean, to think about this guy, the least earnest person in the world, who was, you know, for a long time an editor of a very earnest, you know, it was the editor of Men's Health. I mean, it's not that earnest, but you know, it was like a. a a self-help magazine about you know fitness and 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 uh, nutrition and stuff like that, but that stuff was screamingly funny. And Andrew, as was his wand, had some you know berserk perception. It's like he saw red eye in his mind's eye before there was a red eye before Greg had ever been on television. You know, he saw this thing. You know how he how he was able to do that. You know. It was uh, he was really a, a a wonderment that guy. Yeah, well, but also I think that you know it was a testament to um, a network. They put him on at three in the morning. They just kind of let him do it. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't really know what's going to happen to it. It will not be the same because the the show was always him, and without him, it's not the same. And he's going to have his own show. It's going to be different, and that's good too. Um, but it does show you that there was an. I think it showed everybody there was an appetite out there. Uh, what's interesting about that show, I think, is sometimes you get. You see the fissures on that show in on the on the right that you don't see, you don't see anywhere else, right? Or that you don't see quite in such relief. For instance, last week when the uh, Department of Justice report came out on Ferguson, um, there was a very very good, very sober. Jason Stewart wrote a very good sober piece about that in, in National Review Online, um, and uh, there was an argument about it between the host at the time, Tom Shalou, and Andy Levy. Um, which if you could find it, it's pretty interesting in which, you know, there's a natural tendency on people on the right to kind of roll their eyes and say, oh, you know, it's, it's the Eric Holder Department of Justice. What do they know? Um, but Andy Levy was, uh, you know, sort of said, no, look, this is, these are really bad things. And if you're a conservative, you should really care about this stuff. And we shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't, this, this was definitely a, a case of law enforcement run amok in that town. And the response to all of that was so outrageously over the top sort of on Twitter and everywhere else, that you really did get a sense that there was this kind of team mentality that if, if, if Eric Holder and his Department of Justice say something is true, it must not be true, no matter what it is. Um, and I feel like Red Eye was one of those places where you kind of, for all the fun of it, you, it was the place on Fox News where you kind of could get into those sort of murky areas where you don't ordinarily get them there. Do you know what I mean? Is that, or is that bananas? Sure. Not at all. Yeah, I mean – 
I, I mean, I, I, I think that's always, you know, the, the, there is always an interesting dynamic, uh, on the right. Um, and, you know, it really started with the Bush years, which was this question about was the purpose of being, you know, a, a, a cons, you know, a conservative analyst to fight liberals or to sort of analyze the truth. Right from our you know from from a philosophical perspective and one one you know one would hope uh that both can coexist and there are these occasions on which that report much of which i read this weekend and where i would tend to probably fall much to my surprise on the andy levy side of the of yeah. the equation um you know because i think it makes a very powerful case that uh something went terribly wrong in the conceptualization of what a police department is in Ferguson and that this seems to be representative of what goes on in other places that its primary mission became um, working as a kind of revenue collector and, you know, like a, like a kind of like a revenuer, you know, uh, and, and, and that that led to a series of behaviors by police um, in relation to ordinary uh, civilians that, was and is disastrous that rather than feeling as though you know police are there to provide us with you know security and to keep us free from crime that police were like um IRS agents mm-hmm. walking the street looking to bust you so that you would so that you would pony up a check um for city hall and and the policemen themselves probably felt very much like their purpose you know had been lowered and that they were being evaluated on standards that were not, you know, what, what they had gone into this business for in the first place. And they ended up taking that feeling out on the citizenry because they had no power to take it out on the people above them. Do you agree? Joe, wait, Joe, Joe, do you agree? I mean, or do you think that it's been a pain in the neck? Um, I agree in the extent that I think like some of the stuff, like a couple months ago, NPR and some other and some print outlet did a long se- bunch of series on like the new debtors prisons and how this is a real problem in America basically that you know if if you're very low income and you get into trouble um, and you can't pay the fine then the fu- you get you go to jail you lose your job the interest accrues on the fine you know it, it, it can right. be a real nightmare for low income people and for people you know in our income brackets, you pay the fine, you pay the bill and you move on and you forget about it. And it takes 20 minutes out of your life and it's a pain and that's it. And I, I think that is a real problem in America. And, um, and I'm sure that the Ferguson police department had, had all sorts of problems. My, I, my only problem is it's not that i so much believe that anything Eric Holder says is a lie. Although I think one can make that case. <laughs> um, uh, I, that's I, true. I, I think my problem with it was that it was, the the incentives were so lined up for this to be yeah. a way to distract the media, distract their base, which they had unconscionably or whatever that word is that I can't get out of my mouth. Unconscionably. Um, yeah, unconscionably, outrageously fomented a lot right. of the passions out there. And then it turns out like, oh, crap, we actually can't indict this cop. Well, let's let's give them this report instead. And I think that that and there was not a coincidence about the timing of all of this. 
Right. And it was a very impressive bit of sleight of hand. It doesn't mean that the report isn't true or doesn't have serious truths in it, but I, I, I hate that feeling of being manipulated. Yeah. Right. Being no, you're right. But, sense of well, a that's no, that's, but that's the true. quality of the report, the good part of the report is not the thing that got the news. That's the most important thing. The thing that got the news was, you know, 10 cops sending racist emails, which, you know, fine. So they sent racist emails. So that indicates that, you know, they're not, you know, well, that they, that so, they're wait, a, so is the DOJ going to take over Sony pictures now. Yeah, exactly. right. Exactly. <laughs> that's not what's of interest though. That's what got the news for two or three days. See, they're racist, they're racist, they're racist, even though, um, you know, the report provides much, you know, provides almost complete. It's not even like the, the, the stuff that came out when, uh, officer Darren Wilson, was not indicted, you know, all of the grand jury evidence, those boxes and boxes of grand jury evidence, it provides an almost complete exoneration of Wilson. I mean, it says the witnesses lied, they were not credible, that Wilson's story was credible and the forensic evidence supported his story. So versus that, then there are some policemen in the department who were racists is not has is a is a non sequitur because it has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that there was this one incident in which he was you know in which he was on the verge of being attacked by by a perp and in which he acted within his rights and you know within the law but so it is the other part of the report the less newsy part of the report that is more suggestive and more impressive because I think they make a very powerful argument for this now gentlemen i really think that as uh, ha- as larry king would say it's time to talk about raises yeah is the caller there is the call the, the caller wants to uh, well larry okay. king would go larry king would the, 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 the a true radio segue for like uh one of those uh, those pitchman guys he'd go directly from one thing to the other without stopping it'd be sort right. of like uh and that's why I think the DOJ report in its uh, in its details contains more information about the way we Americans live, the way we live and the way we die than in its headline. And the media got the story wrong. You know, friends, when I want to shave, I want a close shave and I want to shave. That doesn't cost me a lot of money. That's why, so, you know, that's, that's why. Ahead, and that is why we're talking about Harry's shave. Because <laughs> Harry's. High-quality German-engineered blades, crafted for sharpness and precision, half the price of big-name drugstore brands, and they ship it free straight to your door. Started by two guys passionate about creating a better shaving experience, and I can say personally that it is a better shaving experience. I now shave with Harry's razors and use the shaving cream, and they're great. It's easily the best razor I've ever had. And I want to know, Rob – and yes. maybe you can tell me, like an explainer, how does Harry's deliver a superior shave? How does Harry's.com deliver a superior shave? I bet you can't tell me, so I'm going to tell you. Okay, you tell me, yeah. They bought a blade factory in Germany. It's been crafting some of the hmm. world's highest quality blades for almost a century. So they cut out the middleman. They offer an amazing shave at the fraction of the price of drugstore brands. They ship them right to your door. At factory direct prices. And this they was cut. the personal experience of one of the founders, Andy. He went to a drugstore. He waited 10 minutes for someone to unlock the case where the races yeah. were held behind the counter. He bought a four-plack of blades, some shaving cream. It was a lousy experience. He walked out, looked into his bag, 
and he had a receipt for over 25 bucks with products that didn't speak to him as a customer. He felt there had to be a better way, and there is. It's oh, two years old. It's disrupting the shaving industry. You know, uh, the guy, the co-founder helped found uh, Warby Parker, which, which has changed the way people buy eyeglasses, and now he's doing it for shave. So they also... And I, I know I'm going on by this, but they give 1% of their sales and at least 1% of their time to organizations that prepare people for personal and professional success. Their starter is 15 bucks. Razor, three blades, choice of shave cream or foaming shave gel. I like the shave gel. I love the I, have a, I have a tough beard. Uh, I see you're reaching for it right there. Um, and you get uh, $5 <laughs> off your first purchase with the coupon code GLOP. And after using my code, you can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just $10. Is so it just, is it my own bigotry that when I hear the phrase they bought a razor blade factory in Germany, I'm like, um, okay. Well, you know what? That is your bigotry because <laughs> okay. as you know, look, a- Angela Merkel is a fine and upstanding uh, leader of the West. Yeah. We, cut the the we cut out the middle We cut out the middle Okay. So, and by the way, let's talk about free shipping because, you know, it, you know that whole yeah. thing. And this happens if you ever buy anything off TV, I've discovered, because my kids always want me to buy them the lights and for the bath and the this and the that. And it costs nine ninety nine. And then when you go through the whole process online with your credit card and everything, then they tell you that shipping is like 40 bucks. So you bought a $9 thing and it costs 30 bucks to ship it. So this is free shipping. So go to harrys.com now. You'll get $5 off if you type in GLOP with your first purchase, which is very important because not only will you get $5 off, but Harry's will know that you were listening yes. to us. And that's where Jonah gets the big bucks so that he can afford to start the more substantive and money-losing po- podcast that he is dreaming of. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com and enter coupon code GLOP at checkout. $5 off. Start sh- shaving smarter today. And the saddest thing that happened in the last month, aside from, you know, the death of, you know, tens of thousands of people and all sorts of horrible wars, obviously the death of Leonard Nimoy. Are we in agreement? Powerful segue there. I was wow. just following <laughs> Rob's instructions to just keep going. Exactly, just keep barrel. Yeah, you got to be Larry keep King. Keep going. Uh, so I, I, I still think what's hilarious about the Leonard Nimoy wait, death. Wait, not wait, wait, death wait, 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 John. What? If we're going to talk about Leonard Nimoy's death, yes. I think we have to hear from Jonah first. Well, no, it's, it's you know, I mean, uh, Leonard I Nimoy take, was, a, I take, was a... I take grave offense at that. Okay, <laughs> I take grave offense at the idea that just because Jonah had this running gag on the corner with, with Catherine Lopez, I, that that I, makes him uniquely it makes suited him, to be the it, first it, voice on, makes on him, Leonard Nimoy. It makes him uniquely suited to be the first voice. It just did he see Leonard Nimoy and Equus on Broadway? Excuse me. Excuse, uh, me. excuse me. I loved him in Mission Impossible. Yes, go I ahead. Loved, I loved go him ahead. in the, the Bilbo Baggins, but but I want to hear from Jonah. Um, I, I I appreciate that, Rob. You really are. You're looking out for my interests. I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm, 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 the, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the John Stewart of the right. Out. I'm you know, <laughs> feeling that way because you're a cripple, and he feels sorry for you. That's, That's true. Yeah. For for listeners who don't know, I I fell and gravely injured my back. Basically, what happened was John had r- ridden me hard and put me away wet. <laughs> and uh, uh, anyway, That's so John um, Stewart, not not John Podhoritz, by the way, is who he's referring to. Go ahead, Jonah. I'm Leonard. Um, I, I don't. I mean, I think 
first of all, I, I have a real big problem whenever, as John did it in his his artful segue, when people talk about how sad it is when really old people die. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, like I loved William F. Buckley, but William F. Buckley lived a pretty full life. I remember when I was in college, and my, in my college, because you know, as you guys know, I'm the Rosa Parks of gender integration. Um, I was the first in the first co-ed class in an all women's college. Um, and they had uh, a lot of dancers at school. And when Martha Graham died at the age of like 96, who had yeah. retired from dance at like the age of 82, everyone was sort of openly weeping in the hallways. And I was like, when did you want this woman to die? You know, she's 96 years old. Well, we wanted her to die at 63 because I said, like, right. so like, let okay, so a, let's all have a so, good laugh. When people have lived rich, fulfilling lives and they die at a ripe old age, it is not necessarily a tragedy. And we sometimes treat it as if it is. You yeah. know, Robin Williams committing suicide, that's a tragedy. Um, you know, Leonard Nimoy at the age of 82. Um, it's not a tragedy. It's it's a moment for reflection. All the rest. That said, um, I loved Spock in the old Star Trek. I thought Spock was awesome in the old Star Trek. Although in the original pilot, people forget that it was actually Gene Roddenberry's wife in the role of the second in command, and she was a very angry. She was the cold fish, logical character, and Spock was a really angry character. And then when they reimagined it, they got they made the made Gene Roddenberry's wife into Nurse Chapel, and they gave Spock the the logic. Um, at the same time, ever since the original series went off the air, Spock has been nothing but a force for ill in the Star Trek universe. He was a ridiculous character in almost all of the Star Trek movies, except for maybe Wrath of Khan, and in the reboots. It's amazing. Every single time Spock appears on screen, the movie goes from a B plus movie to a D minus movie. Okay, I think um, we need here. I think we need here to cite and direct everyone to the remarkable analysis provided by Matthew Continetti in the Washington Free Beacon on this very subject, which takes up the issue of Spock in the movies, not on the TV show, in the movies, right. and makes the argument that Spock um, is. A jerk. Is a is a jerk, a selfish, uh, selfish, solipsistic jerk. Um, I'm 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 more forgiving uh, because uh, I think Nimoy showed some really great comic chops uh, in the in the in the first four movies or the three the set two three and four, which one did not really know that he had possessed until that point. Um, but you're right, and you know, and and the, there was a sort of change in his characterization in which Spock went from being you know the the person who was struggling with the fact that he was less than human and that he might be less than human and that his Vulcan side was cold and hard and unpleasant and that his human side was passionate and real and you know gave him a real sense of empathy with and you know and and connection to other people that was the spock of the tv show to the sense that the vulcans were better than human and that in fact they were the ones who understood that you needed to negotiate with the klingons and negotiate with the romulans and negotiate with this one and negotiate with that one and then of course it gets to the final ridiculousness which was the reboot of star trek made by jj J. abrams in which spock 
allows his home planet to blow up and six million people to die in order to fulfill his mission of making sure that his younger self and Kirk bury the hatchet and become friends. Right. And that, that's just the – I mean that's a big part of it, but that's just the – just one part of it. Everything in that movie, it drove me crazy. First of all, he is riding across the galaxy in essentially a Walmart scooter, right? It's like a one-seater little thing. With enough of this stuff called red matter, that one drop of it creates a black hole that can destroy a planet. And he's just sort of trudging along with this stuff, um, completely unprotected from you know the, right. the celestial elements. And, and, and almost every single scene, he is, he is basically like he's treating the prime directive, the temporal prime directive, as if they were urinals. And just pissing all over all of the internal consistency of all of this stuff just to make sure that he and Kirk remain best buds. And at the end of the movie, he admits it. He admits he has been lying the entire time just because his friendship with Kirk was so important that it's worth billions of lies and risking the entire universe for. And this it, is why everybody should understand that the new Star Wars movie, which will come out later this year, which was made by the same guy who made the Star Trek reboot, is going to stink. Now, I'm not saying that it's going to stink as bad as Revenge of the Sith because nothing, nothing stinks, stinks as bad as, as Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. But it is going to stink because it is going to be full of these fake unearned emotional moments at which J.J. Abrams just gooses the audience with its own nostalgia about these characters and doesn't actually try to tell a story that right. is credible and that and that by right, the way is internally consistent. Back. He's bringing right. the cast back just like he did with Spock. He brings these guys back as a way to as a sort of an inside right. ironic joke. Yeah, or you know? not an inside ironic joke. It's because he understands he's a he's a brilliant showman and he understands that in fact nobody wants to see seventeen new Star Wars characters. What they want to see is Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia and Jabba the Hutt and Yoda. That's who, wants to see, who wants to see Wait. a stone drunk 70 year old Han Solo <laughs> tatering around, crashing the Millennium Falcon into every Arby's? Wait a minute. Wait, that's a pretty good pitch, by the way. Uh, so um, I don't have anything to say here except just to clarify which one is the one with the big gold robot? <laughs> that would be Forbidden Planet. Okay. That's that the one. Okay. I like that one with the one with the big gold robot who talks like uh, Alec Guinness. I yeah, uh, yeah, I showed that. my kids Star Wars. I have a ten year old, an eight year old, and a four year old. I showed my kids Star Wars this weekend for the first time, and my ten year old, who's a, a girl, liked it, um, but she'd already knew what the plot was because boys in her class had told her. My eight year old was confused, and my four year old said things like, "Who's that gorilla guy?" And uh, wait, if he's Ben Kenobi, who's Obi-Wan Kenobi? And no matter how how many times I said Ben Kenobi is Obi-Wan Kenobi, it's just a nut, it's like his nickname. He just couldn't couldn't get it right. The thing your that is so striking your response to that movie was the same I had the same response when I saw it at like twelve. When I was twelve. You know, I sat know, in the theater and said, Wait, who's the big gorilla guy? Where's Ben Kenobi? I did the same thing. Well, how, no, you have, the thing how come that, that flashlight's so doing that thing? Yeah. 
The thing that is so striking about seeing it, because I haven't really seen it in 30 years, the thing that is so striking is how bad the acting is. I mean, I'm talking about all of the minor players, the aunt, the uncle, you know, the the people who are on the Death Star, um, even Mark Hamill is pretty bad. you know, it, it's really striking. So when, like, the camera's on Alec Guinness, who was actually a great actor, you're like, oh, look, like, somebody who sort of talks remotely the way a human being might <laughs> talk and doesn't pause at weird points in the sentence to take a breath because they don't know how to read a, a line of dialogue. It's really well, – it's a wonderful Alec movie, but Alec the Guinness acting is just – Alec Guinness did not need a director. That was the that was my, when Alec Guinness is good, good right. his performance good. And because there really wasn't a director on that movie. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the uh, so so now we should probably talk a little bit about uh, the question of whether or not um, Hillary Clinton has gotten herself into a patch of trouble that she's going to find hard to get herself out of. Well, I can I I've written about it. Jonah's written about it, but Jonah, Rob hasn't. So Rob, well, you take. No, I'm going to just say that anyone who has not read Jonah's um, G file, uh, and I will not give the big joke away, but there's a very very funny moment in it. Uh, he describes how Jonah. Uh, the, what are you paying Rob this week? He describes <laughs> how on here. Wait, 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 he just, on here. Let me finish that. He describes how the uh, Clinton um, uh, loyalists, the Flax, get the word that there's trouble in Clinton land. <laughs> it's fantastic. Pretty, it's, it's it funny. Uh, so I don't. I mean, I this this seems like the kind of thing that um, that uh, that everybody forgets about in two months, um, and does not matter. But that's just me. Um, but I will go with. I, I was just going to say I will go with the simple fact of the matter is if she destroyed all the emails and they're gone, they're gone. They're gone. And the, and the notion of spending a year hunting for them, you know, and going on some fishing ex that the you know Trey Gowdy and Republicans in Congress are going to that are going to drive themselves insane with the notion that they really need to know what was in those emails because they're not going to find them, and that's what happens when people obstruct justice and destroy documents is that that's a successful strategy assuming that you can really do it. And when you have the email server in your possession and you can take a hammer and and you can take a bulldozer and you can take a steamroller and you can destroy it and slash it and kill it and everything and, and things aren't in the, in the cloud, then it's gone. And the, I think the whole question just is whether we were reminded Basically, of what we're getting into if the if she if she becomes president. Yeah, I, I wrote exactly that column the day after the story broke, saying that you, it puts the Republicans in the position of having to prove a negative, because of course, if there's anything damning on those hard drives, and I I think when in doubt, one should assume that there is something damning on anything the Clintons are hiding. Um, uh, is uh, it's gone? I mean, it's it, they'll find Jimmy Hoffa before they find that hard drive. Um, that said, I think, and I think Rob, you're probably right that people are going to forget a lot of this in the next couple months. But you know, there's a reason why we have that expression: the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's because straws don't normally break camels' backs. It's the it's the burden before the straw that does it. And this puts Hillary at precisely the moment where she was doing her, as I put it in one column, "I am woman, hear me bore." tour um you know try to make this all about this grand continuity from i mean it's amazing to hear like andrea mitchell and these other people carry water for hillary clinton where they're talking about how they wanted this rollout to sort of be timed with the 20th anniversary of 
Hillary Clinton's historic Beijing women's <laughs> rights speech from 1995. <laughs> like, this is something that's on all of our freaking calendars. Like, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure it was a great speech. I vaguely remember she gave it. But this idea that somehow this was up there with I have a dream or something in the in the collective memory is ridiculous. And it's really funny to listen to how many people pretend that 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 spin is accurate. And anyway, so like she her rollout is now completely screwed up again, just like the, her book tour was completely screwed up. And it puts her in this position where they've put all of the usual sock puppets back out in front, remind, make her very much seem like old, tainted 90s um, retreads. And who knows what comes up in six months from now that feels very much like a here we go again. See, this really is her. She's, as I put it in the G file, she's Hillary all the way down. And, uh, you know, so it puts her in a position where she gets close to that some other story is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Right, and I think I think the thing about her that people forget is that he may or may not be Teflon. He's not exactly Teflon. People forget he was not a particularly popular president, and you know he didn't get fifty percent of the vote either time that he ran, and all of that. But if he is anything like Teflon, she is flypaper. Things stick to her. And it's largely because of her own behavior. She makes mistakes all the time. She's been making them for 25 years. Mm -hmm. She's the one who said baking cookies. She's the one who said Tammy Wynette. She's the one who, you know, she's the one who brought, who, who, who uh, fired the travel office. She's the one who was responsible for Whitewater. She is the one who did the vast right wing conspiracy stuff. That's all her. That's all her. That's not him. And the notion that she is some artful, dancing, low, you know, low affect, low pulse politician who is the sort of person who can spend two years running and keep herself together and keep herself cool, which is what people need to do to win, um, is is ridiculous. She could barely get through that press conference at the UN without losing her temper. You know, and, and, nobody told, and, why, and nobody told her to give a press conference anyway. So let her sit down with one of those cat, with one of those cat's paws of hers with Andrea yeah. Mitchell, and then and then yeah. spin out her, you know, spin she's out her nonsense. Bad. She's too mad. Well, she's mad because she's, she's but, she gets no, caught. Just, she always gets caught. But, but there's really? also an enormous number of questions that you could. Ask. I was thinking about doing a column of just questions, like George Will used to do those columns, you know, questions for so and so, and just right. run like thirty five questions. There are still a bunch of questions that could get her in a lot of trouble. You know, no one has asked her. So in the four years you were secretary of state, um, you say that you only destroyed personal emails. So we don't have any emails from you about the Clinton Foundation. Are you telling us that you never once emailed anybody anything about donations or of the or of any sort about the Clinton Foundation? And she doesn't want to answer a question like that because – she sent someone an email and some of the people she sent emails to, they didn't destroy their their other side of the conversation. And I, I think there's a lot of things. So she did one of those press conferences and I, it drives me batty. I think John and I both tweeted about this. Why the press corps in that press conference had to ask three questions? Because the second you ask, you know, each reporter is like, I have three questions. And so you give the you give Hillary the opportunity to not answer two of them. Right. Um, you know, what would be fantastic is to have her go on the Hugh Hewitt show. I mean, I would 
I would clear oh my, my calendar for that. Oh, yeah. You know? I mean, the, the country would stop, but she would never do it. By the way, I think Americans are sort of, wait, don't you think Americans are kind of tired, though? I mean, is there something a little wearying about one more politician who's mad at us? Yeah, she sees mad at us. That's why, <laughs> like, that's, that's why this notion that she is the best candidate that they can field, not that I really know. You know that Elizabeth Warren doesn't have problems and is probably too left wing and this and that and the other thing, but you know, in her in her career, she only won. She has only won one minimally contested election, right? And that was in two thousand, and that was a circumstance in which the guy, the candidate that was going to give her a really hard, you know, really difficult run. Blew himself up. That was Rudy Giuliani, who you know divorced his wife and got sick, and and then the race was sort of left to a uniquely hapless liberal Republican named Rick Lazio, who didn't who 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 mishandled who mishandled his run, and meanwhile it was also clear at that point that whatever vote there was that would have voted against Hillary on the grounds that Lazio was running, a lot of those people had left the state, you know, that in the, right. in the 10 years, in the nineties, a lot of people moved to Florida, moved to Arizona, got out of the state and that, you know, and that there was no, there was no constituency left for a sort of, con, you know, not a conservative candidacy, but a kind of, you know, simple Republican candidacy that was anything but Hillary. So she's won one race. And she lost the biggest race of her life, and here she is now, and it's March of 2015, and she's hobbled. She's not done. She's not wounded. She's not going to go to jail over these emails. The email thing will fade. But you know, if I'm Scott Walker, and I mentioned Scott Walker or Jeb Bush maybe because – but be, Scott Walker, this thing about going in and saying, look, I'm really not from Washington, you know – I'm not from Washington, which is something that politicians have done forever or have done for the last 40 years. And being not from Washington, if your if your rival is Hillary, is going to be an incredibly powerful yeah. message well, yeah, yeah. next year. Because she is like Washington, Washington, you know, to the 10th power now. First lady, secretary of state, you know, lives in a mansion called the Mick, you know, the, the, the Marbleheads or, you know, they've named they've, uh, the White Haven, you know, is her mansion. You know, I don't know. It's crazy. So, so she's not, I think she's not done because of this. I just think if I were a Democrat, if I were, you know, like a Democratic political consultant, I would be scared out of my wits if I had down ticket candidates in states that, you know, where Democrats don't win by 10 or 15 percent if she's at the top of the ticket. Yeah, she's a, look, she's a, just a terrible politician. And, you know, you I mean, we've talked about this before, but, you know, you could pull Bill Clinton off an intern, put him on a stage in front of 5,000 people right. and say, talk about the convergence of nationalism, globalization and, and technology innovation in the 21st century. And he would say, OK. Uh, I have five points to make today, and he would just be off to the races. You know, Hillary has none of those skills, and was evident in that press conference. And the idea that somehow um, she can hold up after over eighteen months as a candidate—I'm I'm, particularly if she doesn't have any opposition—I am really skeptical about. I have very good feelings about twenty sixteen, particularly if it's not Jeb. Right. Well, I'm with you on that because I, I you know, even though. 
um, you know, I think he's I think he was a good governor and he's a very yeah. thoughtful person. He knows a lot about policy, but 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 uh all that stuff. But this is very peculiar. The the Jeb the Jeb Bush thing is a very peculiar circumstance and and a lot of this, you know, I think there's a reason why Scott Walker and Mark, you know, Scott Walker is now leading in the polls and Marco Rubio gets these numbers with Republicans who supposedly he was finished because he was on the wrong side of immigration that, you know, he is viewed most favorably of all Republicans in the field, according to, you know, according to the latest NBC news poll, because they're young, they're fresh, they're new, you know, they, they, you know, and, uh, and, you know, one is a genuinely great talker, Rubio, one of the best political talkers I've ever heard, and you know, one has a really remarkable governing record, and isn't a bad talker either, by the way. And yeah. Rubio is a serious policy guy because he, you know, he he's really trying to put policy forward. So it's things are very interesting. That's all I can say. And you know, she's if she's lucky, she's not interesting. Like she is not intrinsically interesting. What makes when she gets interesting, it's, it's because bad. of trouble. Yeah. Right. It's all right. It's all bad. So. I think the final issue that we need to discuss is the fact that uh, that uh, as we're speaking last night on HBO, a serial killer revealed to the world on a on an open mic that he didn't know he was wearing that he was a serial killer. Something. I mean, I think it's fair to Which say I don't you don't think he's oh, really. You don't think? No, that, no, 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 no. I think he's guilty. I don't think he didn't know he had an open mic. Okay, well, that's a whole other. That's a, but basically. People watched on television as a serial killer whispered to himself, killed them all, of course, meaning the three people, his wife, uh, his friend Susan Berman, and this man that he he admitted that he had dismembered uh, in Texas but was acquitted because he somehow managed to convince a jury that, uh, you know, it was beyond reasonable doubt, you know, that his, it wasn't beyond reasonable doubt that they just had an altercation and that he, you know, the guy had died and all, and Durst, Robert Durst then in a panic had (laughs) chopped up his body into into little pieces. Right. Um, There, but for the grace of God. Right. I mean, this is, this is really, yeah. I mean, this is like a combination of a Columbo episode and Silence of the Lambs, right? I mean, because he's a rich, <laughs> he's a he's a rich, crazy guy who has managed to outwit authorities for thirty years, even though he doesn't seem that brilliant. So that's Columbo-ish, and then it's the Silence of the Lambs because he does things like dismembers people, he kills his wife, right? Kills, <clears throat> he kills, but he, also he you know, also makes weirdly dramatic. Uh, uh, self asides, which I, do people really ever do that in real life? That's right, I killed them all. Killed it's like them a all. Jim Gaffigan routine. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly and right. Also, yeah, right. And also, if you watch, if you watch the previous scene when he was confronted with the fact that he had written that a handwriting expert had basically made clear that this that a, a note that implicated him. Uh, in the murder of his friend Susan Berman in L.A. had been written in his hand, he actually started to burp and gag because it was right there in front of him. And that's when he went off to the bathroom and said, this is a disaster. And he sort of talking to him, must be talking to himself in the mirror. We don't know because the camera wasn't in there. But he basically is like talking to himself about what his lawyer had said when his lawyer said, don't you cooperate with this documentary. You're crazy. This is going to be a disaster. Um. So I just think I just think basically nothing like this has ever happened before. You know, this is actually well, 
It doesn't yeah. happen that people confess to murder. But it, but it does. Know? It does. It, it, it eventually happens if every single thing we do is more and more on tape, on video. <laughs> yeah. It's eventually going to happen. Every single – every other thing we do is going to be there. So why not confessing to murder too? I mean the weird thing about it is that he actually said it. That's what's weird because he's nuts. But – I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, I you know, thought, but it was yeah. like it was like he was on the stand in one of those episodes of Perry Mason from the 1950s. Only he wasn't on the stand, yeah. and you know, and, and yes, I uh, killed her. Yes, yes, I killed yes, her. I did it. I did it. I, I did it. You're damn right. I mean, they ordered the code red. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. All right. So, but here's my thing. So, I haven't watched every episode of this this jinxed thing, but uh, my wife has, and I watched um, I watched the one uh, where they're went over the murder trial in Galveston of the neighbor that he dismembered. And they had his lawyer come up to him saying, hey, look, you're talking. They can hear everything you're saying. You're still miked. And that was like three, four episodes earlier than this finale. And I just said, I think the guy is nuts. And I think that he kind of likes going to trial. And he likes to be the center of attention. And he likes to play games to see what he can get away with. And he's nuts. And I just – I'm not sure I believe that um, he didn't know he was miked in the bathroom. I think he's having a great – and I also think he's guilty of the murders. But I think he's having a lot of fun. He's an old man who likes to be the center of attention and um, and HBO you know, took advantage of it. Fair enough. I mean you could be right. There's – there's, you know, anything is – anything with this guy is possible. Remember, he was only arrested for that murder – a billionaire was only arrested for that murder in Galveston because he was caught shoplifting a sandwich from a Wegmans in Pennsylvania. Those a are good yeah, but shop, shoplifting is the is the classic cry for help yeah, crime. Right. Winona Ryder right. and all those people. It's they there's something you know to call for. It's a cry for attention kind of thing. Right. That's true. That's right. That's right. So. That's why I never talk about the people I dismembered. No, of course not. I don't not even. Yeah. You know what? You know what? And I think Rob is about to say that Jonah, you were that was just great how you didn't talk about <laughs> were dismembered. I, of all the people I know who have dismembered people and not talked about it, I, I really think we should. We, we'll have to post a link to Jonah's not talking about his latest dismemberment. Um, I mean, I just, yeah, but I did like the idea that he. I don't know what I did, but I think it's true, though. I think it's our dissing. Just, oh, I'm sorry. Di- just dissing me constantly. Not dissing you, no. That's very Durstian of you to say that because you're not being praised that it's diss. That's a Durstian statement. You you should now stand in the mirror and say, killed them all. I killed them all. <laughs> That's what I find so weird about it. It's like how come stage villains – how come villains now behave like stage villains? Like they're like, well, i got to play the part of the I don't know, Rob. Why killer. didn't you ask Jonah? Let Jonah <laughs> – <laughs> Hey Jonah, this is, this is maybe something for you for on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah, yeah. So, guys, okay. La- very last thing: anybody going to buy an Apple Watch? Anybody? Anybody going to buy an Apple Watch? Now, Rob, you're a big adopter of things. Yeah, Are you I am. A, I am an early adopter. <clears throat> I have a here's my here's my last take on an Apple Watch. I don't think I'm going to get one because I'm sort of, I'm particular about my watches. Uh, I don't like them to be too – I don't like too much technology on my wrist in general. I don't know why I need it. Uh, I, I, I somehow need it because I have a phone and the phone's in my pocket and the watch keeps me from looking at the phone. I'm not sure I understand why that's a benefit. 
Um, I resent the fact that the latest Apple, uh, the iOS update included an app yeah. for the Apple Watch. I found that to be heavy-handed. And I also think it's stupid, fundamentally stupid for them to have the $10,000 watch. Look, I spend $10,000 on a thing that's I know it's going to be obsolete in 18 months. <laughs> that 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 will make me look like a fool. People will, the, the people who spend ten thousand dollars on that object are not going to look cool the way they look cool if they have a MacBook Air or a MacBook Pro or a, the next most expensive Apple product. They're going to look like douchebags. They're going to look horrible, and I think that's a bad sign. That's going to be that's comb over territory. It's going to be Apple has entered the DeLorean. It's the DeLorean <laughs> of watches, and I think that's a huge mistake for them. So are you saying that and senior rent. executives of Apple are going to get caught trying to smuggle cocaine, cocaine from Ireland to the United States? Is that what you're saying? Yes, I think so. of course, how the DeLorean went there. <clears throat> well, yeah. well, but- also, Apple Watchers are going to be key to the plot in the next uh, Back to the Future remake. Back to the Future 9, yeah. It'll, it'll, it's going to look dated. But, but, you and know, kind don't of worry. J.J. Yeah. J. Abrams is going to make Back to the He's Future 4 – and it's going to be very touching because all of your favorite cat Biff will get hit by some manure, and you know, and, and, and the lens flares the will gleam off of your eyewatch. That's right. It's going to be, uh, it's it's going to be amazing. Well, um, so like I said, Star Wars is going to be terrible. Uh, we've now heard that Spock is, you know, Spock is a is you know went from being a conservative dream to a liberal nightmare, uh, you know. It's been a it's it's an eye-opening show, I think, in which we've had many, many reversals. I've praised a Justice Department report. Rob, you know, has revealed his obsequious support for Jonah in every possible way. And uh and Harry's shave, five percent extra five dollars off if you you know, if you if you put the coupon code GLOP in. Killed them all, of course. Killed them all. <laughs> So, uh, Jonah, do you have anything this month you want to tell anybody about aside from, you know, resting in your bed? Um, back back's, uh, steady? You know, I don't have anything coming up. I just recorded, I just aired over the weekend. I'm sure you can find it on cspan.org. Um, my conversation with Bill Bennett about his new book on pot. I interviewed him for C-SPAN. Um, and that's about it. I don't really have much right now. I'm going on vacation any minute now, so like I don't have anything planned coming up. Rob, no, I got nothing. I got. Oh, I'm hosting Red Eye tomorrow, um, and I'm going to be a guest on it later this week. Who are you going to have on? Who are you going to have I on? Know. I don't know. I you, literally don't know. Jonah, you only you, <laughs> you and Rob together. And you know when Andy Levy's going to be like, "Can I talk?" And Rob's going to go, "No, no, I want Jonah <laughs> to take this first." <laughs> um, now I should tell everybody, by the way, that uh, that um, Rob and Jonah and I are scheduled to appear together. Oh right, the, I forgot. Uh, yeah, at yeah, right, the national at the National Review Summit in Washington, uh, April thirtieth to May second, the Ideas Summit uh, in Washington. We will be doing a sort of live night owl version of of, of this, except we're going to work blue. And and uh, I'm told by our <laughs> yeah. go ahead. And I think we're going to be podcasting it. We, it will be podcast. And our producer, Scott Immergut, will be there too. So it's it's going to be just a party, basically. Right. It's going to be basically like what we did on the cruise, which I believe we podcasted as well, right? We That's did that right. as well. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so we will be Including together. many of the same jokes. 
And I will be – I actually have a speaking gig to promote. I will be at Hofstra University on April uh, 16th. So if you're, if you're uh, on Long Island and you, uh, you want to uh, both hear me speak and then maybe uh, dart across the street to the wonderful um, Cradle of Aviation Museum right near Hofstra University, this is a great day for you to do it April 16th. So – Perfect. And of course, and of course, you know, I will be uh, I will be opening for Bill Cosby at um, at uh, at the Giggles at Leavenworth, uh, Kansas. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Rob Long, I should say, has a really remarkable piece about Bill Cosby. And oh yeah. Biography of him in the uh, April issue of Commentary, which should be literally the hardest piece I've ever written. Because every time I sat down to write it for the past three or four months, every day something else happened in the news about it. It was horrible. I just and wanted those women to stop coming forward so I could finish this piece. Well, and I think we should finish since this whole podcast is about Jonah with the sad news that Jonah had to throw out an entire column last week that he had written about Hillary because of that press conference. Yeah. So, And he had to write it all fresh and new because of the press conference, and there is a reason that woman should not be president. <laughs> <laughs> that alone, I think, invalidates her, her her run for the presidency. So, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure, and I guess we will gather again. I don't know if we'll gather before the National Review uh, Ideas Summit or not, but if we if we will, I will certainly enjoy that and remember Harry Shave and uh, and uh, Rob. Please uh, play us out with. Um, with another imitation of Robert Durst, would you? Killed them all, of course. Killed them all. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Later. <laughs> I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around a bend And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison and time keeps dragging on But that train keeps rolling On down the San Antonio When I was just a baby My mama told me, son Always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns But I shot a man in Reno Just to watch him die When I hear that whistle blowing I hang my head and cry There's rich folks eating from a fancy dining car They're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars Well, I know I had it coming I know I can't be free But those people keep a moving And that's what tortures me Ricochet Join the conversation
Well, if they freed me from this prison, if that railroad train was mine, 